Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Hello, podium finishers. Step on up here and join us where the view is spectacular, the winning is good, and the air is just a little bit thinner. You've arrived at just the right place here at Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson, and here he is, carrying a bloody big trophy and a fistful of Tech Talk and notes for today's episode. It's Matthew Dickerson. How's your, <laughs> hey, how's your week been? Yeah, good, good. Except I want to start on a bit of a downer. Oh, no. And I try here. I try not to. I try and avoid these stories is as much as possible. Is going to be possible. about scams? Oh, of course. Of course it is. So I haven't got any stories on scams. I try and avoid them a bit, but I still think they're absolutely relevant. Oh, they're so important. We've got to know about them. I mean, it's... it's I find um, you know, talking to, to people, you know, loved ones, particularly my parents and whatnot, just about you know, heads up and taking care of themselves. And exactly right. And I think one of the things that you see with schemes is it's, I suppose part of the thing we do is play an educational role. So if we talk about them a little bit without giving any credit to these very intelligent people doing very bad things, then I think at least some people might avoid them. So I want to just run through a few of the common ones that are happening at the moment. And I don't want to go into great detail, but I just want to mention a few of them. At the moment, the toll road scam so the ones that say you oh. owe a toll yeah they have found approximately 105,000 scam texts reported to the toll road operators in the last five weeks I don't know how they've got oh, that number right. but that seems like a large number whether that's yeah. all the people that have ringing up the toll road they've stopped saying, contacting me so I'm glad oh good you yeah. must have paid the fine well done <laughs> maybe I did but whether they're contacting the toll road operator saying I owe fine and no you don't and that must have been a scam but 105,000 sounds like a lot mm. the look who da- just died scam ah. and this is apparently normally focused on Facebook yeah users. is that on Facebook yeah yeah, yeah 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 so it starts off often with a text hey mm. look who just died or I know you're a fan of these I'm really sorry about this yeah. and curiosity you can't help yourself so of course you click on the link to go and have a look at who just died because it might be a famous actor it might be a famous sports person whatever and then of course for you to get in and see who died it's just asking if you for yeah. just your facebook details just type those in because it must have logged out of facebook on your phone <laughs> All of a sudden. so just put your Hang details in you told me that i knew this person who just died and now you want to know my details that's right well I, i'm really curious so i better put my facebook details in and of course you just sent them straight to a scammer the other one is the pay id scammer now we mm. or scam we did talk about you this you talked about briefly. this earlier on yeah. yeah that's right so just a bit of an update on that $260,000 lost, and that's only the last few months of last <sighs> year. So already that's becoming a really big scam. And again, that's until people realise what's happening about pay ID and how simple it is that, for it to work. And of course, two other quick ones, the phone calls that you get from your loved one that says, hey, Dad, I'm just in trouble. I've lost my phone. I'm ringing a friend's yeah, phone. Yeah, yeah. Just drop me some money. Oh, sure thing. Son, are you okay? I hope you're okay. And that's not really your son's voice. That's an AI voice impersonating your son. And the other one is the uh, scam where you actually have someone say, here are my new bank details. Mm. And I saw this not so much from an employee perspective where you get someone who sends through to their employer, here's my new new bank details, can you please pay my wages in there each week? This one was going through to some suppliers that were paying – a regular amount, and I'm talking significant sums here, maybe $50,000 a week to their supply chain master, if you like. And essentially, this came through. It looked identical. And I actually saw one where the guy had sent me the email, and everything looked spot on, 
except there was an extra L in the domain oh, name. Oh, wow. And, and an, it was a double L, so it turned a single L into a double L in this particular name. And when you looked at that, sometimes an L by itself or a double L, it's a bit hard to tell the yeah. difference. So you really had to look, and he said, it seemed unusual that I just got this email to say new bank details. And I was about to go and update the bank details, but I just looked and went, hold on, I think it's a double L. And then he rang his account manager and went, no, we haven't sent you that email. So just a few of those little common ones. And some of these are ones we've seen before and they're just revisiting them, hoping to catch someone else. So I suppose the message here is just be alert, lots of scams. And maybe end of tax year, you might get the ATO supposedly saying for your refund, send in. Well, apparently a lot of these um, scams are coming out now because of the end end of the financial year. Anyway, so keep an eye on those. Sorry to start off a bit of a downer, but let's get some more exciting stuff. um, my one consolation is that those people who are behind those scams, they're not receiving any presents from Santa Claus this year. So <laughs> good, good. They're on the naughty list. Well, enough of this lollygagging. It's time for our headline stories of the week. Now, if you've been holding out for Apple's latest virtual reality gear, wait no longer because it's on the shelves, people. And Matt, are we no longer calling it virtual reality or augmented reality? We're now calling it mixed reality. Is that something? That's what Apple would like us to do, It's, it's mixed reality. Mixed reality. A so bit of real reality, a <laughs> bit of not-so-real reality. And anyway. Apple like to be unique. Okay. And Apple like to be first to market or best in market yep. is usually the logic of Apple. It's the fruit and nut of reality. That's what it is. <laughs> That's it. So they're calling their... Augmented reality, mixed reality, VR headset, they're calling it Vision Pro. Oh, right. Now, why do we get excited about that? Why do we want to get excited? Because well, you've got professional vision. <laughs> that's, that's right. <laughs> but I'm going to talk about the price tag later because the price tag is different and interesting. So we'll get <laughs> to on, that. Sorry. Sorry. The price tag is different and interesting. <laughs> Wait for that, folks. I want to talk about the actual <laughs> product itself. Okay. They've designed a headset that makes you look really silly, as if VR headsets don't make yeah. you look silly enough already, <laughs> because while you're wearing the mixed reality headset, let's go with Apple's terminology, what the heck, while you're wearing the mixed reality headset, you're having 12 cameras, five sensors, and six microphones grabbing all the information around you, oh, wow. bringing that inside your headset, and you can then see that mixed in with whatever you have projected in the actual yeah, game right. or program you might be using. So Pokemon that's, Go. So you're chasing after those Pokemon, and they're in your lounge room, and you're awesome. All of that. Exactly right. Now, other VR headsets do similar things, but none have got as many cameras or sensors, etc. Does it come that. with a padded suit for when you actually start crashing into stuff? It needs that, doesn't it? Yeah. Absolutely right. But what they've done with that is when you look at someone using this from the outside, you can actually see through the lens. So they're semi-transparent. So you can see someone's eyes. It looks pretty silly when you're looking at someone's eyes. It's not just a headset (laughs) that blocks off everything, but you can actually see their eyes. They can't see you, kind of, because they can't see the real version of you. They might be able to see the mixed reality version of you because the cameras might pick up you and mix that into the reality of what's on the headset. You're looking like a pink elephant or something. That's right. So it sounds Now, what they're trying to do, and this does relate to the price tag, what they're trying to do is to say, don't just buy this to pay some games on, because it's hard to justify a mixed reality headset just for games. Sorry, so you live your life with this on? Pretty much, yeah. (laughs) FaceTime calls, you now do in this. Now, what does someone see at the other end watching you, because you're looking a bit silly with these big goggles on, and transparent glass, semi-transparent glass. So what they're seeing is an avatar of you. So right. then the FaceTime call doesn't really become a nice connection with your loved ones because you've got this big thing on your face. So that's one thing. Use it FaceTime calls, absolutely. Then they want you to use it for 
watching movies because essentially there's a 4K screen in front of each eye, the equivalent screen of maybe 30 metres wide. So forget about a big screen in your lounge room on the wall. You can sit there with your headset on and watch that. I don't know how that goes saying, hey, mum and dad and kids, sit around. (laughs) We all sit around with our goggles on. We all need one of these. So that suddenly (laughs) makes an incredibly large TV in the lounge room seem very cheap when you start to have a headset. It sounds more like a reality remover. (laughs) It does, doesn't it? So you're going to remove yourself completely from reality. And then mix in. (laughs) <laughs> okay, yeah, okay, right. yeah. <laughs> so that's the second thing you might want to use it for. Of course, games. I, I glossed over games, but of course you'll use it for games. That makes sense. Yep. But also you've got versions of, say, Word and Excel of normal applications you'd use, normal work applications, and you use those in the mixed reality headset because you're looking at a big mother screen. So yeah, right. what the heck? The actual unit itself looks fairly comfortable. It's got a nice elastic band on the back. It's not too big on the front, but it's got a battery pack. And rather than have that mounted on your head, which probably gets a bit heavy, heavy. it runs down to another battery pack that you have hanging off you somewhere. So are you controlling, can you scroll through the screen, say, if if you're reading emails or whatever, with your fingers out in front of you and you wave your hand in the air and... Things like that, yeah. Yeah, Now, I haven't played with one yet. Sounds like Tony Stark. Yeah, that's right. I, I can't tell you exactly, but that's the idea, so that you're using spatial areas to actually make things happen. Now, I do need to get to the price. And this is where You have to get a mortgage. Well, well, especially for the kids and you watching movies, they announced the headset at three and a half thousand US. So we're talking about maybe $5,300 Australian, depending on the exchange rate. So when you start talking about mum and dad and the kids, then yeah, sure, you might be spending 15, 20, 25 grand, depending on how many kids you've got. Five cent pieces in the five cent saver. Absolutely right. Or as I say, it's a pretty big TV you can buy for the same price. And the reason I want to delay the price a bit is that all the commentary I've seen so far on this has all been leading with the price. And then it's hard to focus on the technology yeah. in the device yeah. when you, you're you sitting there for the rest of the five-minute segment going, $5,300? What? Are you serious? <laughs> Are you sure that's the right price? So I want to yeah. get past that and just talk about the technology because it's pretty cool. I'm, it is very cool technology, but um, it, is. It, it is a reality remover. <laughs> that's part of it. It's a reality remover when you have to pay $5,300. Can I pay that in some sort of mixed reality coin? Mixed <laughs> reality <laughs> currency, yes. Yeah, that'd yes, be nice, you can. <laughs> so I'm interested to see how it goes. I want to play with one to see how it goes for a start. It's not one of those things you want to buy and then go, oh, it's not that good, I'll leave it in the corner. Can you wait for the next generation to come out? Yeah, maybe. maybe. Yeah. But you'll be waiting a long time because the version that will be released in the US won't be available to the beginning of next year, oh, so okay. 2024 we're talking about. And they haven't announced the rollout for other countries, but Australia's normally fairly early in the rollout. We're pretty good at being innovators and adopters, so it might be fairly early, but it might be the middle of 2024 before we finally see it in this country. Right. So I'm sure we'll see a few reviews, people so playing with it. come to those who wait, but and um, wait, yeah. And wait and, and wait. And you've got time to save up. Yeah, well, that's maybe that's why they've done it. I actually did wonder why they had the announcement so far before that, but I didn't realise that was the reason why. Start saving now, <laughs> folks, and by the time it comes out, you'll finally have enough money that you can actually go. And, and, and thankfully, Australia is in a really good financial position right now, too, with the Reserve Bank being what it is and whatnot. That's right. Forget that mortgage. Yeah. You start to put some money aside for this. That's right. Being one to just turn your back and walk away from Worldwide Developers Conference, Matt, your eye got caught by another little surprise on offer for the Apple fans out there. 
Tell us about the new smart screen capability. Well, I did look at a whole bunch of stuff that was announced, and often when they have the Worldwide Developers Conference, there'll be a new iOS they announce and lots of new features. And I must admit, I looked through those, and there are lots of little, fun, exciting, different things that Apple like you to get excited about, because mm. when they announce them, they're so excited, and we know they're excited because they tell us they're excited. <laughs> I'm excited by this. So Otherwise, you'd have no idea. That's right. You couldn't tell by their expression or by the product. The only one that did grab my attention, and there are lots of ones out there, and that's probably a bit harsh, but one I did like was the idea of turning your phone into your bedside clock. Now, it seems obvious. Mm. Not many people, sorry, that's not right, many people no longer have a bedside clock because they use their phone. They have it charging beside their bed, for example. They might use that as their alarm clock, for example. And so you wake up in the middle of the night and you reach over and you might hit the screen to look at the time and it's all a bit clumsy. And I've always thought you've got lots of these cool stands now. You've got MagSafe stands, for example, or stands that just keep your phone upright. And I think surely there's a way to turn it into a clock that's a fairly low light clock, sits there beside the bed, and you can just check the time in the middle of the night, just like a good old-fashioned alarm clock, Mm. but then it can have extra features. Well, when iOS 17 is released, which will be sometime after today, then you'll have the ability to turn this feature on and essentially... Once your phone goes into horizontal mode, it turns into standby mode or clock mode. And better than a normal alarm clock, you can adjust the brightness up and down and do all those sort of fancy things. But then you can also have things like your calendar or your weather. So have some extra information. So effectively, it turns into a smart screen beside your bed. And we kind of do that already by sitting it down there and you scroll through something and look at the weather for tomorrow or look at your calendar or whatever yeah, it might be. I was kind of be. wondering how this is different to just having your phone. Automated. So when I go to bed and I've got my little MagSafe stand beside the bed and I sit on that in horizontal mode, it goes, oh, I know what's going on here. Ah. Time for me to go into standby mode. (laughs) So it goes into standby mode. Those things happen automatically. You set the clock up to look fancy or boring or whatever it might be. You've got whatever information you want on there. So it all just happens automatically. So you're right. It's kind of what we're doing now, what most people do now, whatever style of phone they've got. But it's just one of those things to make it part of our daily life that we can't do without. We have to have it beside us all day, every day. Sleeping, waking, whatever it might be. Here's a nice little reward for EV drivers who fly in and fly out of Dallas Airport. A mobile charging station will cruise the car park there and top up your EV while you're away. Matt, this is an awesome little initiative and it's all via a simple little app. Well, it's actually quite interesting, isn't it? We see more and more demand for charging infrastructure, but you've got to get the charging infrastructure to where you need it. And then you've got to, say, for example, reserve some car parking spots and hope someone doesn't come along and ice you and take away your car parking spot because it was a more convenient parking spot. And so Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport, a large airport, said we need to come up with a better solution because we don't want to go and build the infrastructure. And you can imagine multi-storey car park, lots of concrete. You've got to run some fairly significant cables to these. It all sounds a bit clumsy. So they've come up with Ziggy. Well, I don't think they came up with it. Someone approached them and said, why don't you start using Ziggy? Ziggy is an EV charging chariot. I like the idea of that. Ziggy. It's got one job and it's going to come past your car. Yep. That's right. And, and you, charge it up. You, As you said, you pull out your app and you say, this is where I am, and you wait there for a few minutes, not sure how long, and along comes Ziggy, and you plug it in as normal, and off you go and 
fly to wherever you're going to, do whatever you want. Yeah, so you still have to be there to plug it in. Mm. Right, so you can book your time as you're arriving at the airport. Yeah, that's right. Now, I'm not sure what happens when you fly for three days away somewhere and come back and, and you've, been hogging, still plugged in. you've been hogging Ziggy. <laughs> so I actually think it's set up so that it can actually, after it's charged, disconnect because most cars will unlock the charging port yeah. so it can disconnect and then move on to the next person. It's obviously just a big battery on wheels, so it has to go somewhere in between times and charge itself up before it comes along and charges your car up. But this is what's happening. People are coming up with innovative solutions. Great. And with a name like a chariot, we assume it's not horse-drawn. but um. <laughs> No, no, it's got its own little wheels and it's got a battery in there hey. that can drive it all. But the other part that I thought was interesting is that it's got some screens because it's a reasonable-sized device. It's got some screens on there, so they're actually charging companies to run some advertising on those screens. So presumably while you get there and ah. plug in a charge-up, you can see a few ads pop up. That covers part of the cost of it all. And you pay a normal normal-ish sort of price to actually use it to charge up. I wonder, I wonder how long it takes before these um, these start showing up at shopping centres and things like that. Well, this is the first thing, isn't it? Using them at an airport, great, but now Makes sense. it just seems like you can use them in a whole range of places. Now, I know my brother in his apartment block was struggling. He wanted to get an EV, but he wanted to have somewhere to charge it. And the apartment block said there's a whole bunch of processes you've got to go through to get some charging. There are no power points nearby to get some sort of decent charging near his car. So mm. he's still going through that process. He doesn't want to get the EV till he's got somewhere to charge it, and that's a bit of a drama to get through. But exactly as you suggest, there's a potential argument there to say, well, let's just put a Ziggy in, forget about all that charging infrastructure. And also, that charging infrastructure will be at my brother's car parking spot. But what about if Billy, who's five car parking spots up, wants to charge his EV? Yeah. Oh, we've got more infrastructure to put in. Oh, no, that's a bit of a drama. So having a Ziggy, for example, in a parking lot, a shopping centre, wherever it might be, You've just got this process. Now, I thought that someone might go and steal that because batteries might be worth a little bit. But a bit like you see with some of the e-scooters, it's got GPS built in. It's got some cameras built in. They can do live feed from those cameras to someone so they can track where it is. It's got lots of power to keep running it, obviously. So they've thought of most things. And I think you'd probably notice if, for example, at the airport, someone's going out through the security with a big Ziggy under their arm. <laughs> so I might say, hold on, sir, is that your Ziggy you're taking out there? So it's just a different way of going about getting some charge to a car in that sort of environment. Good on them for thinking of it. Now, last week we talked about the very lucrative and expanding world of esports. As I understand, certain skills developed in this arena are quite transferable for even drone operators in the US military. Now, not to be left behind, the ultra-high-tech world of the Formula One racing industry, they've seen potential in a similar way. It just may be that the drivers of the next decade may have earned their seat not on a go-kart circuit or within a stock car team, but rather from the comfort of their very own lounge room. Is that right, Matt? That's absolutely right. And they might go and compete somewhere with esports, but the problem is, take F1, the 20 drivers that are on the grid of F1 have typically had Extreme talent, Mm. extreme dedication over a number of years, but they've also had access to some dollars somewhere along the way. There's got to be some funds behind them. Now, some of them might have generated that through their exceptional skills and going out there and hitting up people for sponsorship. Some of them, like Lance Stroll, just have their dad buy a team. Why not? What the heck? When your dad buys a team, (laughs) you can be the driver. Exactly right. Now, not everyone's got access to that, but it's a fairly hard slog to get there, and it would be fair to say that the skills of those 20 on the grid are extremely high, 
but there's probably other drivers around the world. Mm. And it's pretty competitive for those. So in esports now, in F1 esport racing, you've actually got teams that are the similar teams to the ones racing in the real Formula One. So you've yeah, got McLaren, you've got Red Bull, you've got Ferrari, yeah. you've got Mercedes. And when there was. They're all investing in it. They're investing in it. Because they're scouting. Exactly right. Now, when they see the skills of these people in esports arena, the simulators are so good now that some of these drivers, when they look at how they drive, in the esports arena, they go, well, we could take that guy, drop him in a Formula 1 car tomorrow, and he's a goer. Now, a couple of minor issues here. When you're racing F1 in esports and you crash, you hit the reset button and go again. Yeah, that's right. Not always quite that easy in the real world. <laughs> and the other part they found is that sometimes people have got these extreme skills in esports racing, but there's not the danger element. Yeah. And when you're racing on the real track, when you're going at a real 300-odd kilometres an hour and there's a real brick wall there, sometimes people don't adapt to that quite as nicely as you expect them to. But, but have you seen some of the units that you can get now for, for these Formula 1 racing games? You're actually sitting almost in the cockpit of yeah. a Formula 1 car yep. that's on hydraulics and whatnot. Yep. So if you hit the wall, it's going to throw you around a bit still. Yeah. And as you're going around the corner, it can simulate those G-forces that you're feeling and so that's and that's exactly right. And in fact, the drivers themselves, even when you've got a driver that turns up to a track they haven't driven on before, they've driven probably hundreds of hours in a simulator before they get there. So they know yeah. that track already. But they are doing scouting. So you've hit the nail on the head. They're doing scouting. So if you thought you missed your opportunity, James, to be an F1 driver, and you don't want to go through it's all the too late. go. No, that's exactly <laughs> right. You don't want to go through all the go karting and all the F3, F2, F1, all those. All through those junior ranks now as a fifty year old. That's right. Forget <laughs> that. The under twelves. Yeah. Go and start okay. racing esports. Go okay. and get your, your simulator. Get the the state of the art simulator. Start racing esports. And if you can excel, if you can start winning some of these. You might come to the attention of some of these. You might have to lie about your age initially, just to so they they might want to adapt to right. a, a, a younger ish driver. But uh, there's potential there. There might be some Masters games. I like the idea of that, um, but I'm also not actually opposed to racing against a whole lot of 12-year-olds in go-karts either. <laughs> so um, I think I might buy myself a go-kart. <laughs> Get started, what the heck? <laughs> Here's a little something for anyone who's missed an important Zoom meeting in the past. Zoom has developed an AI aid to catch up on catch you up on all the details. And so now there's absolutely no excuses for not actioning item 36B by the deadline, Matt. There is a time, sometimes you get to the end of a video conference and you think that's an hour that I just Which won't ever get I'll back. Never get back. <laughs> so I sometimes want back. you want to miss some of those meetings, but you'll know yeah. there'll be something for you to do out of that meeting. Or the other thing that probably happens more often for people is they just come in half an hour late, deliberately maybe, but maybe they're really busy with another meeting. So Zoom is still trying to work out how they keep their business model rolling along. Obviously during COVID-19, their business exploded. Fantastic. Well mm -hmm. done to them. That's one of the, the winners out of a pandemic. Obviously, now people are going back to work, then the demand for Zoom isn't quite as high. People still use it. They've learned how to use video conferencing now, but they're looking for other edges to keep them in the game. And this AI concept is brilliant. So the first one is you miss a meeting. doesn't matter. You don't want to watch the pre-recorded or the, the recorded one hour of that meeting because 
the only thing worse than being in a one-hour meeting is watching a recording of a yes. one-hour meeting. <laughs> that wasn't that, that you exciting. You can't contribute to if you wanted to. Exactly right. I want to say something now. That guy is an yeah. idiot. What's he talking about? Oh, I can't do anything about it. I want it. to get up and walk out of it <laughs> and, and make a scene of it. That's right. But Storm no one's going to see it. That's right. So <laughs> your first thing is you'll get an AI summary of the meeting. Any important conversations, any important actions, in particular, as you said, James, you've got to do this after the meeting, right? I better have that highlighted from our AI tool. But the one I probably like better is you turn up late and you get a quick catch up. Because the only thing worse than turning up late to a meeting is when someone says, Now, what about the blue widgets? What are we doing about those? Yeah. And someone says, Well, actually, everyone says, We've already covered that. Yeah. That was in the 10th minute when you weren't here at the meeting. <laughs> so turning up to a meeting and actually looking at the summary of where you got up to in that meeting and you look through the list and you go, oh, they've already talked about Blue Widgets, I won't bring that up because I'll look like an idiot because I wasn't there. So I reckon now what you'll get, and I'm not suggesting this, but I reckon <laughs> what you'll get is people turn up to the first minute of the meeting and then just put their avatar on, duck out, do whatever else they want to do, uh, come back after 30 back minutes or summary. so, look at the quick summary and then make a contribution and as if they've been there all along, which works okay until they say, now what do you think about that, James? James? James, what yes. do you think about that? <laughs> He's not there. <laughs> so I just not fooling anyone. No, I think we're seeing AI incorporated into so many things, but just the ways we'll see AI, we can't even dream about yet. And there's another one. I wouldn't have thought mm. you'd you'd go and engage AI to give you a summary of a Zoom meeting, but that's exactly what they're doing. So how are you feeling about driverless cars now? Thought about it much? Are you a flat, no, thank you? Well, good news, there's still a couple of years away from hitting Australia, but AI is creeping into cars more and more. And so by the time driverless cars do hit Australia, I reckon it's going to be no major leap by then. So the latest news is that automatic braking systems are set to become standard in all new vehicles in the US from now on. And Matt, roadways are set to become a little bit safer still. Well, I do like the concept here that we've got this technology that's available and we're not using it everywhere. And I love the story of Volvo, who invented, or one of the employees of Volvo invented the seatbelt. And they said, this is too important a safety device for us to keep to ourselves. Mm. We don't want to go and patent it and keep it for ourselves. We want to share this with the automotive world. And I love that concept. Is yeah. And look, compared to all the other safety features that are in cars, I think it'd be hard to argue that anything, any one safety feature has saved more lives than a seatbelt. Yeah, exactly right. So fantastic. Well done to Volvo. And then it took a few years. And from memory, Victoria was the first one I to make it, it yeah. law that new cars had to have seatbelts on. You know what? I've just had a bunch of kids do an assignment on this. Oh, really? <laughs> so there I'm up, go. yes, you're right. You're yeah, spot good. on. So what year was that? Uh, 1971. There you go. There we so, go. <laughs> uh, good. So that's fantastic. And then the quicker it becomes law, obviously, the quicker it's on every car. And I'm sure before it became law, for example, in other states, then there were cars that had it. There might have been the higher-end cars, the better cars, had seatbelts. And, oh, you've got one of those flash cars with a seatbelt, have a you? A retractable seatbelt. Oh, getting flash. <laughs> and then, obviously, it became law and then it's rolled out. And we've seen that with things like ABS, with airbags. It usually comes in luxury vehicles or high-end vehicles first mm. and then rolls out as law. So automatic braking. And I've, I've driven cars, cars I've got now, same as yours, have got automatic braking. And it has actually happened from time to time. And you think, 
wow, I just wasn't paying attention for a second. Yeah. That could have been pretty bad. Oh, I didn't really think about this car having automatic braking, but I'm glad it had automatic braking. Yeah. Obviously, it's not law yet, and there are lots of cars out there you can still buy that don't have it. But the saving of lives, we're so focused on trying to get towards zero. We've got lots of states in their road transport strategy saying, let's get towards zero, let's focus on zero, but it's not really happening, but technology can help. So in the US at the moment, auto regulators are looking at getting to the point and not too far away that they will make automatic braking systems a requirement to sell a new car in the US. Mm. Now, they're probably talking about six months before that will happen. And from the time they say that's now law, they've typically got three years to implement that. So it's not going to happen immediately. But the good part is when that becomes law in a market the size of the US, most manufacturers will say, you know what? It's just as easy to build all our cars with automatic braking. So if we're going to have to do it for the US market, let's do it for everywhere. Now, the other thing that might happen is regulators around the world might say it's now compulsory as well once the US has done it. So I think that's really important because it's still scary how many deaths and injuries in the US, for example, 36,500 deaths in a year, 4.5 million injuries. What I don't quite understand, they put a value on it, US $340 billion. I don't know how you put a value on a human life, but there is obviously some uh, actuary out there maybe who does a calculation to say the contribution of that person to the planet, to the country, whatever it might be. But yeah, how would you put a value on a human life from an individual personal perspective? You can't. But there is a significant cost there. And what's the cost of adding automatic braking systems? There is a cost to have it in every car. But surely it's going to be less than $340 billion US. So Mm. good move, I think. And I do like to see lots of technology trying to be used to reduce the road toll. And I think what's also going to happen is that, um, yeah, these people who are worried about AI, when they realise that the AI is actually embedded in everything they've got in the car anyway, this whole business of the driverless car might just be a little bit more of a, a smooth transition. One step closer, and that might be when we finally get to the zero in tragedies on the roads because AI might be driving everyone. Got some old computers lying around the house? Perhaps you're like us and have a a special shelf in the garage for some old laptops or whatnot. But There's been quite a bit of pushback against e-waste in recent years. So the question begs, what bits of old computer are recyclable, Matt? Well, actually, I'm really disappointed with this, and I didn't realise until I did the research for this just the amount of waste we've got. Now, we mine products to make hard drives in our computers, mm. and we manufacture those, which takes resources and energy and, and this with beautiful hard drive, and they're quite incredible now. Often those hard drives have got nine platters inside them. They're spinning, and I'm talking about not SSD. I'm talking about good old-fashioned hard drives, but the yeah. consumer ones are spinning at 7,200 revs per minute, and it's just it's quite incredible. I remember taking lids off various drives and playing with them when I was working away with computers, and you see this little arm go back and forth across the platter and the multiple platters, all fantastic. And then the density of storage on those platters. So it's called the aerial density, A-R-E-A-L, the aerial density. You're getting to the point where you're getting about 175 gigabytes of data stored per square centimetre. So that just seems like a huge amount of data. But the thing that I found disappointing about this is that people get to the end of their life with their 
computer slash hard drive, and they're worried about the sensitive data on there, which is fair enough. So they send these hard drives off for shredding. Mm. 70 million hard drives were shredded last year. Now, remind me not to fall into the shredding machine because a device that shreds a hard drive, yeah. I think that's going to be pretty serious. It's not like a little paper shredder. You get a paper cut. It sounds pretty serious to shred a hard drive. But I don't think we should be doing that. I don't think we need to do that. 70 million hard drives. 70 million. Just now, last year. Just last year. Now, sales of hard drives, and I'm talking about combined now SSD and normal hard drives, you're talking about, they've actually dropped in number a little bit over the last few years, but you're still talking about 300 to 400 million hard drives are sold each year, mm. but again, 70 million destroyed. So one of the reasons is, and there's been lots of research done, and there's often stories you'll hear where someone's found an old hard drive, uh, an old computer at the tip, and someone pulls the hard drive and they go, oh, look at this, I've got everyone's Medicare information or yeah. lots of dates of birth or credit card information, and that's what scares people about the removal of that information and so they've taken this drastic step of destroying it but i have two big issues with it one i'm not sure how small the pieces of the actual hard drive are after they shred them but when i use that example 175 gigs per square centimeter well if you found a hard drive that was shredded and there was a square centimeter of a platter well that's a fair bit of data 175 gigs now, recovering that data is not the easiest thing in the world. I was going to say, is it even possible? It's possible, definitely. You'd probably want to be sure there was something on there of great interest to you before you went and, and processed that. But the way I talk about storage of data on a hard drive, most people understand there's a bunch of ones and zeros, which is not quite right. They're more like movements of magnetic particles that mm. simulate ones and zeros. But let's just go with ones and zeros for the moment. And the way I like to talk about it is that you've got the actual data, the ones and zeros on the hard drive, and then you've got an address table, file allocation table, that has the addresses of all those bits of data. So when you look at a file, you're looking at the address table to tell the actual plat or the, the head on the platter where to go on the platter to pick up that data. Now, when you delete a file, for example, it typically just deletes the record of the address, not the actual data itself. And the example yeah, I use is right. if you take, for example, a postal service and someone goes and destroys the data at the postal service, they now don't know that James Eddy lives at 10 somewhere street, but you still live there. So if you go out now and look at all the different houses, they can actually get the information back that James Eddy lives at 10 somewhere street, even though the post office has been blown up, it's got the, all the addresses there. Yeah, right. So to rebuild the data, when you delete a, a file, it deletes the file allocation table, the record of where the data is, but you can rebuild it from the data on the hard drive. Not an easy thing to do. And when the, the hard drive is still in place and still spinning, it's actually relatively easy to rebuild data. But when someone takes a little square centimetre of a hard drive and says, get me the data off that, it's a bit harder, but you can still reconstruct some data from there. So even though you shred it, it may not be actually gone. The data may not be gone. But I just hate the idea that we take all these hard drives that probably still work, most of them are still working, and we just destroy them. So all that work that's gone into mining, etc. So... What I recommend is going out there and finding companies that will securely destroy your data, or, and I'm talking about destroying it by electronically destroying it, and then that hard drive can be used again, and you can even do it yourself. There's a little file that comes with every Windows PC for free called S-Delete, and it's actually it conforms to the US Department of Defense Standard 5220.22-M, for the hand that number of again, sorry, <laughs> just kidding. 5220.22-M <laughs> for the handling of classified information. 
So if you run that particular utility, and typically I would run it three times, it actually goes and writes other data, might be random data, might be random ones and zeros, over all those different bits of files so that the data is gone. So you can't then go and recover it again. That's much smarter. And then that hard drive, you can give to anyone else and say, there you go, have a nice day. Now, there's other utilities out there, or there are companies out there that will make sure they'll flush that data out and say, here you go, that hard drive now can be put back into circulation, used somewhere else, might be used in a different application, for example, but that seems like a much smarter thing to do. And there are some organisations around the world that are doing that. There's an organisation called the Circular Drive Initiative, which is trying to do exactly that, to stop the destruction of all these hard drives and say, let's securely delete the data and then let them be used again. And so data centres might want to use them. You might want to use them as some other backup storage, for example, a whole bunch of ways that you could use that data. I never even thought that that was a thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. Because there are some organisations that they get a new computer, well, we'll just get a new hard drive, we better destroy that. Or there are some data centres, for example, that run their hard drives for the five-year warranty, for example, and then they say, well, the warranty's gone, now let's go and destroy those. But I just think we can be a bit nicer to the planet. Mm. And also we could access or have people with access to computers for a cheaper rate if they were reusing these hard drives. That's way before you start looking at actually recycling the the raw components out of that. I think it's a much smarter way to go. Mm. seen a koala in the wild? Now, if your answer is no, then you're in good company. They're a pretty reclusive sort of a beast. Well, your chances of spotting a free-roaming koala now in the Kular Tops National Park have picked up a notch because a whole bunch of them have been located by scientists courtesy of some very clever tech. Matt, are we in danger of being overrun by cuddly tree-bound marsupials or what? Well, on the contrary, we're in danger of maybe them not being extinct and there has been some discussion in the past that yeah that's right we wouldn't want to lose our koala some discussion in the past that we might be the the population may be dwindling to a point that it's going to be hard to maintain the population of koalas in this nation so that's obviously a bad thing we don't want to lose the koalas but trying to get an accurate population count then putting strategies together to try and work out ways to increase the population count well, you need the accurate population count to start with. To start with. with, yeah. And that's been really tricky. It has been tricky, but they've got some drones now, and this is where I love the technology, where they've been sending drones over some areas in the cooler tops you mentioned there. That's a, a national park in the, the northwest of the state. Having drones go over and look for heat signatures of koalas to be able to be identified as koalas. Now, to me, the heat signature of a koala looks like a bit of a blob, but mm. this AI in the drones themselves is good enough that it can distinguish a koala from a kangaroo or from a human. It basically is good enough to identify. That's clever. It is. And so they've identified an additional 42 koalas in the cooler tops. Now, that doesn't sound like many in the whole scheme of so things. So we're not going to be overrun. Not, but, uh, so I think we're safe from that aspect. Okay. But there. we had a count there with how many koalas we thought we had in the cooler tops. Now we can add 42 to that count. But by using these drones to send them over a whole range of areas, we can start to get that accurate population count and then say, now let's put some strategies in place in five years' time. What's the population? Oh, good, it's going up again now. Oh, no, it's still going down. We need to change our strategies, whatever. But again, you wouldn't think the good old cuddly koala would be saved by technology, but in this case, it may well be. Well, I also think it's probably got applications there for um, uh, improving the biodiversity of um, animals like the koala as well. So you might be needing to shift 
koalas from, say, one national park to another national park to increase the genetic diversity around um, and give them a bit bit more, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, um, the, the, the greater population, a bit more integrity. So, um, yeah, I can see this has got further application still. Well, that's a pretty good point too. They might want to take them from areas that have got low population to places with higher population or they might just want to be able to find them in the first place to pick them up and take them to some of those areas mm. because they're not the easy things to spot. No. I know we've had people from overseas when you see a koala we go to an area where we know the koalas and you stand around for a while and you look and you go I'm sure there's some here sometime soon just keep waiting but they kind of blend in they do quite a good job of blending into the tree and they're not that active so you can't spot them rustling through the leaves yeah, as such right. anyway it's good to see technology being used for something as important as saving koalas and while we're on the theme of tracking animals in the natural world, how would you go about tracking the movements of a little honeybee? Well, if you're using anything other than a teeny tiny little mag- magnetic backpack, then you're wasting your time, fool. Get with the modern age. Matt, I've got to say, I love the idea of tracking these little buggers, but I wouldn't have thought that a couple of magnets would be enough. What's the cool science behind this? Well, we're talking about a sensor that's about a millimetre square tacked on the back of bees. And it is a little magnet, right? It's a, It's got some like a opposing... pair of magnets. Yeah, opposing magnetic spheres in a little cylindrical housing. Now, that all sounds fantastic to track bees with, but the and real application here is to put it in the human body and track what's happening down the gastrointestinal tract. So not swallowing the bees, but just taking L- them... <laughs> leave the bees off them. Yeah, they're doing right, a bit okay. of the testing on the bees, and they're also using them for testing on bees to see where they go and tracking flight paths and a whole range of things. So that's all fascinating. But I think they're going to be used from a medical perspective first. So you'll then get a 3D image of how food goes down or how you when you swallow where how this is all going and making sure it's going down the right path and how long it takes to get from the mouth to the other end and all mm-hmm. sorts of fascinating things but I, I actually thought when I was reading this story about honey I shrunk the kids the whole <laughs> idea of, of shrinking something down a person for example and putting it in the bloodstream or putting it inside a human well we're not quite doing that but we're taking sensors taking information on these sensors that then you can send down through now you could then start to monitor a tumour, for example. You actually mm. monitor how a tumour is going inside. You could monitor just the gastrointestinal health. You might even be able to monitor blood pressure by having this in arteries and seeing what's being built up inside those arteries. A whole range of things could be highlighted from that. But again, it just sounds fascinating how small we're getting to these devices. Remember, they need some sort of battery in them as well. So this is all about packing so much into something very small and then using it to track things and, and basically be a sensor that's inside the body. Knowing yourself thoroughly inside and out. What a way to go. (laughs) Exactly right. Fantastic. And that's all we've got time for you today, folks. If you want any more, then you'll have to throw another $2 into the meter. In the meantime, I'm just going to go right ahead and say thanks very much for a cracking tech talk, Matt. I know, and I might not be here next week because I'll just see how this F1 goes, but I'm waiting for a few drives and then I'll wait for a call up from maybe Red Bull. Maybe Max might be sick next week and they'll just need me. So if I'm here, you know I didn't quite make it, okay? Yeah, good luck with that. Okay, (laughs) I'm heading out to my car now and I hope a little mobile charger has done its job. Although I may be expecting a little bit too much too soon. I, I get that. That's all from me, James Eddy. Forever grateful for the opportunity to chat about the latest and greatest in tech and to you, our listeners, for just tuning in. I'm so grateful. Look after yourselves and we'll see you again in a week's time. Hooroo!